You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is Episode 8.15, Spike Field. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan and CD cinema sicko. And I'm Nina, forced to admit that, yeah, okay, maybe we should try to translate the Mayfly of Space audio drama. You just want to hear more Shima. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of our 716 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest patrons. Bye, Botnet and Aaron L. You keep us Genki. And thank you to Slice the Light for supporting us on Ko-fi. We are in the process of ordering goodies for this year's merch packs, gifts that go out to patrons in our highest tiers. In past years, these packs have included things like Frabo and the Orphans t-shirts, postcards of memes and commissioned fan art, dressy socks with MSB's logo, a golden cassette tape with our 100th episode on it, handmade artwork by me, stickers, and more. If that sounds like fun, check out all of our patron tiers, plus their associated benefits, and sign up today at gundampodcast.com patreon. This week, we are talking about two short bonus features, Uchu no Kagero, parts 1 and 2, known in English as The Mayfly of Space. These shorts are both based on an hour-long audio drama called a CD cinema in Japanese. Mayfly of Space focuses on the perspective of fan-favorite character and pirate queen of space, Commander Shima Garahau. The audio CD was released on December 16, 1992, the same day as the Laserdisc version of Afterglow of Xeon, so you can almost imagine the two discs on display together in the store. About three minutes of the audio drama was extracted and set to a mixture of new and reused animation to create the first Mayfly short, which was then offered as a bonus incentive for fans purchasing the latter half of the series on Laserdisc. The second Mayfly of Space short, produced in 2016 as part of the 25th anniversary re-release of Stardust Memory on Blu-ray, is an expanded version of the first Mayfly short, roughly 11 minutes in length, and composed of a mixture of sound from the audio drama with animation recycled from the series and the first Mayfly short, expanded with newly drawn segments of motion comic, static images combined with camera techniques like panning and zooming in order to give a certain impression of action. Despite the 25-year gap between the two releases, we are invoking the rule that lets us finish a series, even if other things started during its run. And after all, they are both based on the same original work from 1992. The Mayfly shorts were mostly overseen by the team that made Stardust Memory, including director and writer Imanishi, composer Hagita Mitsuo, art director Higashi Junichi, and animation directors Sano Hirotoshi and Kawamoto Toshihiro. The voice actors reprised their roles from the show and were joined by Kitagawa Katsuhiro, the voice of Asakura in the first Gundam compilation movie, also reprising that role. And now the recap.
Part 1 Asleep in a chair at her desk, she must startles awake from a nightmare, a flashback to the one-year war. It is fragmentary, mobile suits silhouetted in the light reflected off a colony's exterior. Shima herself in her mobile suit cockpit, panting and sweating, tense, eye twitching, someone calling her name. She brushes herself off brusquely and leaves her quarters, pacing the halls of her ship, the Lily Marlene. An alarm sounds and a voice on the intercom calls all aboard to battle stations. Shima's mind returns to the past, to the memory of her hesitation outside that colony, of the voice calling to her, of the narrowing of her eyes and the decision made. With a shake, she brings herself back to the present, and with a toss of her hair, seems to don her usual aura of bravado. This is the infamous Shima fleet, and it is far too late for second thoughts. Part 2 Another memory, hazy, as if viewed on an old and staticky television. New Year's Eve, EUC 79, the Battle of Abawaku. What remains of the Xeon fleet is trying to escape, but Shima is the target of an entire combat group. Grinning lopsidedly, she tells her comrade Gale that survival is just a roll of the dice. She takes out mobile suit after mobile suit, but there are too many of them. She is hit once, twice, again. Her visor cracks. It seems she's met her end, and she cries out, Sig Zion, farewell. Again, Shima startles awake in her chair. Gato has arrived in space with the Unit 2, and Shima is there to welcome him with an unexpected attack. Their beam sabers clash, and memory takes over once again. The memory of Zeon admirals, captains, and commanders arguing about whether to fight on, flee to Axis, or surrender. The Federation are demanding reparations, and her superior orders her to turn over the Lily Marlene. Instead, she launches in her mobile suit, intent on destroying her superior's ship. It is Gato who stops her, encouraging patience and decorum so that they can fight on, so that Zeon may rise again. But Shima has no patience for Gato's sermonizing. They are already war criminals, and she has resigned herself to the gallows. Cut to their clash in space, where Shima suggests Gato somehow helped her avoid execution. Cut to Shima sitting alone and dejected at a bar on the moon, hearing the news that her comrade Gale has been caught and sentenced to death for B-grade war crimes. Cut to Shima's superior from the One Year War, accusing her of sullying the dignified name of Zeon, threatening her with dire punishments, dismissing her as a nuisance. She seems poleaxed, then indignant. Cut to Gato's attack on the Naval Review. The blinding light of the explosion, like the light bouncing off the outside of the colony in Shima's flashbacks. The ticking of the Operation Stardust countdown. Her fleet's attack on the empty colonies. Then a meeting with Basque Olm. Forwards or backwards? When are we? Shima is absolved of the past and given new subordinates. Titans. With the cooperation of Shima's co-conspirator, the director of Anaheim Electronics, the empty colony is directed around the moon and back towards Earth. Shima receives the last of the Gundam Development Project mobile suits, the Gerbera Tetra. Then the end, the final climactic battle between Shima and the Gerbera Tetra and Cole in the Unit 3. When Cole jabs the muzzle of his mega beam cannon into the middle of her mobile suit, Shima's visor cracks apart. As though watching herself from outside, commenting on a dream or a memory, 
She muses that all of life seems to be a matter of luck, a roll of the dice. Coal fires, and the Gerbera Tetra with Shima inside it is obliterated. This time, it seems, she rolled poorly. The colony falls to Earth. Again, Shima wakes as though from a nightmare. Again, she fell asleep in her chair. She prowls the halls of the Lily Marlene. A voice on the intercom calls her to the bridge. The Pier Gint has engaged with the Federation fleet. Shima orders her ship to almost run down Gatos, taunting him as they are forced into evasive maneuvers. She laughs, and the Lily Marlene flies deeper into the darkness of space. Long-time listeners will be very familiar with my, I'm going to call it occasional frustration, with Gundam's tendency to just kind of assume that you have read, listened to, watched, etc., all of these side materials in order to get the full benefit, the full impact of some animated piece of Gundam. I quite liked these shorts, but I have a lot of questions, which I assume are mostly answered by the radio drama. But given our own stipulations about covering what's been animated, and these are animated and the rest of the radio drama isn't, I just get to be confused and uh, consult my Gundam encyclopedia, which is to say Tom, (laughs) about my various questions. I do really wonder what life was like in the era before the wiki and Reddit and fan blogs and all of this stuff. What was being a Gundam fan like in 1992? This is an earnest thing. I would really like to talk to some people who were into the fandom, such as it was back in those days, to get a sense for what that, let's call it information space, was like. Because I know a bunch of details about these shorts from the radio drama. And I've never actually listened to the whole thing all the way through, and my Japanese is not on a level where I could understand it, even if I was doing that without a whole lot of extra effort. Stay tuned, though, because we might actually be working on that in the near future. But most of what I know about this is from reading other people's summaries. And I'm assuming that people have accurately characterized what's in the radio drama and that I can rely on those summaries. I think as Gundam fans, we tend to do that a lot, actually. There's an enormous amount of information that we only know because we read it on a blog or on a wiki somewhere. So I'm happy to fill in the blanks and answer your questions. But, you know, this is information that's coming, like, third-hand at best. Because of the nature of these shorts and also the limited animation and their length, a lot of things are glossed over or left out, and a lot of things are not explained. By the end of it, I really wondered... Whether Shima is having nightmares that are flashbacks, but also nightmares that are premonitions. Because they keep putting that staticky filter over things and sort of jumping back and forth in time in a way that is confusing. (laughs) (laughs) This is especially true in the second of the two Mayfly shorts. Yes. The first one, I think, is more straightforward. I mean, it's only three minutes long. There's not all that much in there. Well, the second one ends where the first one begins, even though other things that happen after that scene have already been depicted. 
including Shima's death. Yes. Shima's death happens like three quarters of the way through Mayfly of Space 2, and then it wraps back around to her having this nightmare. Right, which is why I wondered if she was having a premonition. It has a weird relationship to the text of the show in terms of what's happening and how it's presented. These feel like they're from Shima's perspective, which makes it that much weirder when it continues after she dies. They exist kind of outside of time, I guess, as their own special separate thing. And that staticky filter you mentioned gets applied to those sections of animation that have been lifted out of the original show. But I don't think it's applied to all of them. That's part of what's confusing. Initially, it feels as though it's being applied exclusively to events being remembered. But because it's not happening evenly, because some things that feel as though they are in the past are not given that filter because they have newly drawn stills <laughs> or limited animation. When we are and who we are is not always very clear. Do these count as compilation movies? Eh. <laughs> Was the radio drama released in parts? No. You can't have a compilation of a single item. Hang on. It is compiled from segments of the original show and the radio drama. Sure. Whatever. I don't, <laughs> I don't care enough about this question to be funny. <laughs> you got me. One point for Tom. What game are we playing? I don't know. <laughs> you seemed very eager to win that argument, though. <laughs> I'm just looking for a good compilation movie, and I think this might be it. First question. In the first of Shima's Nightmares, several of her pilots are silhouetted against a very bright, shining surface... She's nearby. That light is also reflecting off of her. Some of the pilots are calling out to her. It's unclear if she cannot get to them in time or is too afraid for her own safety to try to save them. But she is definitely frozen and scared. She's panting. She's sweating. That is the colony laser from, from the One Year War? No. That is the colony that is going to be dropped on Earth. Her team are gassing the inhabitants. Oh. That emotion you're reading on her face, which looks like fear, may be her reluctance to give the order to unleash the gas. Why are her men calling out to her as though they are in danger then? I think they're asking her for the order to initiate the operation. Okay. Yeah, just because there's also, it was clearly a colony. Mm -hmm. There's a, a later part of that same memory or that same scene where you see one end of it. Mm -hmm. The light, I think, is coming from inside the colony. That's the, the, the window that they're passing in front of. Yeah. There's also a moment before the window becomes uh, so reflective when you can see inside. Mm -hmm. In that same memory, she looks straight at one of the mobile suits, though, that's just kind of static in front of this window. And it's one of their own. It's mm -hmm. a Zaku, I think. I think that's meant to be her mobile suit. That's just like staring at the colony before making the decision. Okay, I don't think so at all. I thought there were a couple of mobile suits in front of the window of the colony. This one is looking away from the colony, actually. And then she is, I thought, nearby, but looking at them. Okay, I completely misunderstood this whole scene, apparently. Though this answers some later questions I had. I assumed <laughs> from this depiction that basically the same thing that Basque did, where he fired on his own vanguard with the Solar System 2 weapon, 
happened with the colony laser and Shima soldiers, that they had been in a position in the way of the colony laser, it had been fired anyway, they were stranded either because of mobile suit problems or injury, and Shima couldn't get to them in time. I don't think that that's what's happening here. Though now you've made me doubt. Like I said, most of what I know about these details is coming second or third hand. Well, it could certainly be what you've said, uh, and one or both of us is just wrong about who is in those mobile suits. There's a brief flash during this scene, really, really short, to the poison gas canisters. Ah, okay. But your incredible new type of powers of understanding are on display here, because while... I don't believe that Shima and her troops were actually, like, fired upon by the colony laser. They do have a relationship to the colony laser, which is not made clear in this short at all. And you just intuited that there was something there connecting them to it. Like I said, this explanation ties into a couple of other questions that I had, such as, was Shima an ace in her own right? Because here's this entire combat group being told to ignore everybody but her on the field. And that could be because they have realized, oh, she's about to give an order to gas the colony. Or she could be this very dangerous ace pilot and they've decided they need to gang up on her and take her out. So that scene where they say everybody concentrate on Shima, that's from like the end of the war. That's a year after that first little bit. Ah, okay. That's when she and her team are trying to escape the disaster at Abawaku, with Gato and his folks flying off in one direction, and Shima and her folks presumably breaking out in a different direction. All these MAUs, Marine Amphibious Units, whatever they call them. And then she says to her compatriot, Gail, something about military rules superseding honor, and I was not at all clear what that was about. That is probably because these MAU folks, they are Xeon's dirty tricks detachment. They do the war crimes. Ah. So, no honor, but they follow the military orders. Except that at the end of this, when the war is over, the people who gave them those orders leave them hanging out to dry. Right. It doesn't happen until much later, but she is scolded by this admiral or general or whoever that... Her fleet disregarded military regulations, that they have sullied the dignified name of Zeon, when, of course, they were acting under orders. Yeah, she, she barks out, disregarded, because the guy who was saying that was her commanding officer, who gave her and Gail all of these orders. On top of that, she is ordered to surrender her ship because the Federation is demanding post-war reparations, which feels more World War One than World War Two, but my impression was that Shima is simply not powerful enough in her own right or well-connected enough to avoid this kind of mistreatment. Well, and as gets mentioned on that news broadcast, her compatriot Gail is a Class B war criminal, which we'll come back to that in a minute. But Shima also, because of the things that she did under orders, is almost certainly a war criminal, bound for the hangman's noose if she ever does get captured. So even aside from her own like independent power and influence within the army, she would be a scapegoat. And then Asakura is the name of her commanding officer? Yes. And that's his ship she's headed towards? 
Yes. Okay. He is an obscure character from First Gundam, actually. He looked familiar. Yeah. So he is the guy who is in charge of the solar ray system. He's the one who Giran gives orders to in the final episodes of First Gundam. What most delighted me about these shorts is how they draw connections between Shima and Gato. She gives herself up for dead. She has accepted death at the end of the One Year War, just like Gato had. He gets talked out of it by Delaz. She doesn't get talked out of it by Gato, but he stalls her enough that she does not kamikaze attack her commanding officer's ship a parallel to the very end of the Stardust Memory series where Gato kamikaze attacks one of the Federation ships. It's hard to imagine that Shima would, like, willingly throw her life away in this attack. She would probably try to get away alive, but it does seem like an attack that would have ended in her death. And she also says, I might as well go out with a bang. She makes comments as though she is deciding to do this rather than face a hanging mm -hmm. in the post-war courts. She says farewell. She cries out a Sigzion. It feels supremely ridiculous, but also very gato for him to have only just been talked out of throwing his life away and then turn around and very authoritatively lecture someone else. <laughs> that lecture is also very interesting because he talks about like, we need to live for honor and justice. And Shima who has already been in the war, the like dark counterpart to Gato, who has been doing the war crimes so that Gato can be at the forefront, all shiny and glistening with honor. To hear that, she's like, no, justice would mean my execution. I've done crimes, man. What honor do I have? I follow orders and they're bad orders. And it makes us understand her so much more, and in my case, dislike Gato considerably more, for him to take this high and mighty attitude against her when he knows what Zeon did to her. I do wonder how much he knows about that. She did horrible things in the name of this organization, and they completely betrayed her. There's kind of a red oni, blue oni thing going on here, where... I believe Gato's backstory puts him in the fleet that escorted the colony during Operation British. So, like, he was also part of the colony drop operation, but he did the clean part. He did the fly out in front and fight the Federation forces and help the colony reach its destination part. Very honorable, make a name for yourself, kill a lot of enemy soldiers. His hands get to remain clean because Shima and her forces went and already did the massacring civilians' atrocities. So in the same way as in the Blue Oni Red Oni story, where one of them pretends to be a monster so that everyone will like the other one, Shima has to be a monster so that Gato can be honorable. Which really, when you think about it in those terms, does so much to undermine the myth of Gato and the clean Xeon army and the glorious war hero. And it's the kind of dichotomy that often gets trotted out also between pacifism and thinking that there are acceptable reasons for violence. I'm not going to get into the whole debate, but, you know, a lot of people would contend that, like, most pacifists feel comfortable being pacifists because there are people around willing to do the violence that protects them. I don't know that that's strictly true, but that's the argument. 
And there's certainly an argument that pacifism is a very selfish philosophy, because by refusing to use violence in defense of others, you subject them to the violence of those who are willing to use violence. So you keep your soul clean, you avoid staining your hands with violence, but you don't reduce the amount of violence being done. Yeah, and I'm sure there are a lot of pacifists who, who would willingly sacrifice their lives rather than commit violence, uh, but... But again, that's not the end of it. After you sacrifice your life, what about the other people? Sure. Another question. Shima tells Gato, I avoided the gallows thanks to you. Did he help her hide out? Did he help her get away? I assume she just means because he stopped her from killing Asakura and suffering the consequences of that. Or because him and the Delaz fleet gave her the cover to escape. I don't actually have an answer to this one. The shorts also make this connection between her task in Operation Stardust to capture and begin the process of setting these colonies on a path to Earth is giving her flashbacks to that previous mission. Uh, it makes very clear that that's part of why she looks so ill. Like Even as she's doing what she was ordered to do and we see so few signs of compunction from her, but more and more the uh, the nightmares, the being asleep at her desk, the uh, little flashes of feeling show that her bravado is something that she puts on in order to keep living with herself. She never came home from the war, just like the other members of the Delaz fleet. And she can't give up this life of pirate queen. She can't go to Axis because she's already been betrayed by her own side, and she knows that they would use her as a scapegoat or bury her in order to avoid being stained by the consequences of the things that she did for them back during the war. But she also can't surrender and join the Earth Federation. She saw what they did to Gale. She knows they would do the same thing to her. So she doesn't have a lot of options except live fast, roll the dice, and uh, see what happens. Maybe that's the ultimate prize of all of this, that if she had won, if she had pulled the whole thing off, she would have gotten a pardon, a new identity, a place to live free from all of this. She does say in her voiceover of the meeting with Basque that she has been absolved, and that the Titans already exist at that point, although at that point they're probably still sort of under the radar, in hiding. They have been conceived of, they have members, but it's not official. Not that Basque's absolution is worth very much. I assume she doesn't put much stock in what any superior, quote-unquote, promises her. And like Gato, even if she had gotten what she wanted, she would never have escaped herself. She would never have escaped the demons, the things that the war did to her. Did we ever talk about the fact that the song Lily Marlene was originally German and then got English covers, in particular by Marlena Dietrich, and became a very popular song on, like, both sides of the war throughout World War II? Because that feels relevant. Well, I think the Marlene Dietrich version was recorded in German and broadcast by the Allies to the German troops to demoralize them. But she also recorded a version in English that was very popular with U.S. soldiers. So yeah, I 
love these glimpses of Shima's life, of a bit about why she is the way she is. Did you notice they gave her uh, gray hairs? No. In the one-year war, there's this one scene where there are a bunch of strands of her hair that are gray or white. And I would have, under normal circumstances, thought they were just highlights, but the way it's drawn in feels more like, oh, the war is turning her hair gray. Well, she's 35. It's not unusual for her somebody Ancient. that age to have gray hair. In an interview that I watched, the director, Imanishi, said, of all of the characters, Shima is the one who most resembles him. She has his personality. He sees himself in her. Terrifying. (laughs) Something about the art style for these made me think of American comics. Mm. Something about the line work, the richness of the color, some of the design changes in the faces. uh, It felt much more like an American comic than... Like the show. Mm. This is exclusively from Mayfly 2. Because the first one is actually like, the whole thing is animated. I guess that's why it's so much shorter. And it reuses a fair piece of animation from the original. But it is fully animated. It's only the second one that's the motion comic. But I actually think they did a really good job of it. I mean... I liked it. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. it It was well done. One of my fondest wishes is that the whole radio drama would be redone with the motion comic treatment and an English translation. I would love that. So, Mr. Bondi, if you're listening, Bondi-san, please, for me, for number one Gundam Phantom. Something about the colors, the way it pops, I really liked it. I mentioned before that there was a connection between Shima and her crew and the colony laser, and it's that they are from Mahal. They are from the colony that was forcibly emptied out in order to turn it into a laser by their boss. So there's just so many layers of Zeon's various atrocities, like all coming to rest on Shima and her folks. And no wonder that they turned into the people that they are in this show. I love the Gerbera Tetra's little face. (laughs) Are you going to do a piece on Gerberas? What's their flower significance? I feel like somebody posted about this on the Patreon. I'm sure there is one. I could. I could also talk about mayflies. There was something very funny to me about Shima's quarters. Her empty desk with its marble desk set and the little silver-framed photograph and leather-bound books. Well, it goes with the vibe of her bridge. It's all very, like, archaicized. Mm, that's true. And the, she's sitting in one of those cane chairs. Yeah. I dig her style. And it can feel a little cobbled together, mm-hmm. which if you're a pirate and stealing things from random ships, probably pretty appropriate. It's rumored, you know, that she didn't just raid Federation or civilian ships. It's rumored that she might have been raiding other survivors from the Xeon forces. She gives the impression of someone who feels they've been living on borrowed time. I mean, what's the thing we all know about mayflies? They don't last very long. Last question. Or no, second to last question. (laughs) The two last questions can go together. I'm ready to answer all three of your remaining questions. Gato mentions a major general bidder. Who is that? Why does he mention him? Or her, I guess. I don't think we've met any women generals, but... Noyen Bitter is the name of the commanding officer of that underground base in Africa. Mm, okay. 
So having made it safely to space, he's saying that he hopes this commander's spirit, since he dies Mm -hmm. helping Gato get away, sees that they were successful, that the sacrifice achieved its goal. Though Gato was blasting off by the time that Bitter was getting blasted, so he may not actually know that the guy is dead. And then within the second short, they show Gato and Shima having a little bit of a scuffle, having a clash when Gato first gets out into space in the Unit 2. Did that happen? Not in the show, and... The way the show presents the timeline of events, I think it's very unlikely that her ship would have been there for that. Because this is right before she, like, buzzes by the Pier Gint. Right, and makes her snarky jokes about him. So it'd be a little weird for her to be doing all of that after just having a sword fight. Maybe she's just fantasizing about it. About his shock at finding her alive after all this time. About what it would be like. To kill a Gundam and Gato at the same moment. In the final estimation, this is a weird, experimental, very indulgent feeling little artifact. It's not necessary for anything, but it has so much power. I feel like it evokes the characters and the vibes of this series really well. And I just love an opportunity to spend more time with Shima and her voice actor and... Her whole deal. Yeah, for what is basically a 90s-era Shima fan cam, it's way better than it has any right to be. I don't know how much it costs to produce one of these little motion comics, but it can't be that much. I was going to say that from a very mercenary perspective, it is probably, you know, moderately low-effort, low-cost thing to add to a special release that actually has a lot of value for the people who will then buy that product. Mm -hmm. Strong suspicion that Shima proved to be a fan favorite (laughs) once the series was coming out, and people were like, we want more Shima. More Shima. And it may have taken them some time to get there, but they delivered, kind of. And hey, Mr. Bondi, that radio drama has already been recorded. You've already paid the voice actors. Just do a motion comic. Come on. For me. For us. And for Shima. Or she'll kill you. And now Tom's research on The Secret of Women's Bodies. The book. The book, The Secret of Women's Bodies. Episode 8 was all about Ko's transition from callow youth to adult male, as first signaled by his adoption of the more masculine pronoun ore over the boyish boku, and completed by his field promotion to second lieutenant in the final voiceover. The other characters around him spend the rest of the episode articulating what it means to be a man, through a mixture of earnest advice, affectionate teasing, and outright scorn. In the language of the show, Manhood consists of the willingness to endure suffering, as expressed through Ko's courageous effort to consume the hated carrot. Self-reliance, or perhaps surpassing and replacing your aging predecessors, in either case, as forced upon him by the untimely death of his fatherly protector, Lieutenant Burning. And aggressive sexuality, 
as demonstrated by Moncha, but encouraged by Burning, Keith, and even Nina during the dust-up over the stolen photographs and their ultimate fate in the Albion's shredder. Each of these is intertwined. Cole first uses Ore after Nina congratulates him on finally beating Lieutenant Burning in a drill. When Keith catches Ko in the middle of a platter of carrots, the latter says he's eating them because Nina always treats him like a little kid. The voiceover from Captain Synapse about Koa's promotion is said in the same breath as his prayer for the peaceful repose of Burning's soul. Around the middle of the episode, sandwiched between two scenes of Burning and Synapse discussing their own failing bodies and the ravages of time, Keith exhorts Ko to recognize the charms of adult women and to learn more about them, at last grabbing Ko by the shoulders, shaking him, and insisting, Don't you think you ought to learn every little bit you can? This comes immediately after Keith's date with Mora in episode 7, so it's funny to imagine that Keith's insistence now is because he experienced some surprises and wants to spare his friend the same shock. But I'm getting off topic. Cole, with his typical straightforwardness, goes immediately to the Albion's library and checks out a stack of three books on the subject of women. Nina helpfully lists the titles. The ABCs of Women, On Spacenoid Females, and The Secret of Women's Bodies. Only that last one is shown in detail, with its title written in English, and it's the one that interests me the most. Nina gives its title in Japanese as Nyotai no Shinpi. Nyotai is a compound word made from the kanji for woman and body, and it translates fairly literally to female body. Shinpi combines the characters for god and secret, and it means a secret, a mystery, or mysteriousness. It's one of several words that could have been used for secret, and it conveys a sense of a mystery which lies beyond the limits of human understanding. It's used for sacred mysteries, and it forms the first half of the word for mysticism, Shinpi Shugi. The title immediately suggests that the book is written for an inexperienced male audience, one overawed by all things feminine. It's perfectly suited to Ko. When Nina looks over the books, she says, well, if he's still reading books like these. But just what kind of a book is The Secret of Women's Bodies? There's something about this book in particular that stood out to me. For one thing, it's a rare example of translation within the text of the show. It's possible that both titles were specified by Imanishi when he wrote the script for the episode. Or else, someone on staff, storyboard artist Kase Mitsuko, animation director Osaka Hiroshi, episode director Watanabe Shinichiro, or one of the animators, saw the Japanese Nyotai no Shinpi and decided to render it as The Secret of Women's Bodies. However it happened, one version of the title must have been the original and the other one a translation. But either way, this translation would not have been automatic. If you wanted to write The Secret of Women's Bodies in Japanese, it would be at least equally natural to use Ona no Karada no Himitsu. In fact, a similar kind of book published in 2008 was called Otoko ga Shiteokitai Ona no Karada no Himitsu, The Secrets of Women's Bodies That Men Want to Know. Likewise, a 2017 book about puberty with manga-style illustrations was called Onanoko no Karada no Himitsu, Secrets of Girls' Bodies. The landmark women's health text Our Bodies, Ourselves was first translated into Japanese in 1974 as Ona no Karada Se to Ai no Shinjitsu, Women's Bodies, The Truth About Sex and Gender. 
Edward Shorter's A History of Women's Bodies was translated literally as Ona no Karada no Rekishi. Likewise, dating advice websites have plenty of articles using that same Ona no Karada no Himitsu formula. Articles like The Secrets of a Woman's Body That I Learned from Dating Them and Eleven Secrets of Girls' Bodies Don't Let the Boys Find Out. Even an advertisement for ginger syrup described it as the secret of a woman's body because of its purported rejuvenating and beautifying effects. From the other direction, if you were translating Nyotai no Shinpi into English, you could just as well call the book Mysteries of the Female Body, or even The Feminine Mystique. Although, incidentally, the Japanese translation of the 1963 feminist text by that name is called Atarashi Jose no Sozo, Creation of the New Woman. Besides all of these linguistic questions, I kept thinking about the book's cover. It's shown in a fair amount of detail in a cut of animation devoted almost exclusively to showing it off. The book itself is a red hardcover, and below the title there's an illustration of a classic or classically styled statue of a woman in a tunic amid some twining vines. Was this modeled after a real book? It wouldn't be the first time Gundam's creators did that. Recall how we tracked down the sci-fi art book that Chris McKenzie dropped in Season 5, or how the newspaper from the final episode of 0080 used text copied from a then-recent issue of real-world English-language newspaper, The Japan Times. Earlier this season, we noted that Captain Passerov's Russian-language book bore details like the publisher's logo that suggested it, too, was drawn with direct reference to some real book. My search to identify the inspirations behind The Secret of Women's Bodies did not produce many truly definitive answers, but I did find a lot of interesting stuff along the way, and since I never expected to learn that from Gundam is kind of our unofficial motto here at MSB, let's dive a little deeper. The English title doesn't correspond to any real-world book, at least not one listed in readily available online libraries. There are lots of works with these kinds of titles, but it was not, I think, lifted from the 1952 Ingmar Bergman film Secrets of Women or the 1991 Victorian erotic novel under the same name. Or, for that matter, the obscure 1936 book Secret of Woman, written by English playwright Helen Jerome. The closest match I did find was an article on 20th century history which does include the phrase Secrets of Women's Bodies in its title, but that article wasn't published until 1996. Varying the terms a bit, I did find a reference to an obscure pamphlet, Mysteries of the Female Body, A Man's Guide to Women, but it was also from 1996. It is possible that this lack of results is simply due to the limitations of internet research into old books. A minor text from the 1980s or earlier, whether in English or Japanese, might well have left no trace of its existence on the good old World Wide Web. And as all of these titles I've been talking about demonstrate, this general framing of the woman's body as mysterious, containing many secrets, is pretty common. Lots of pop science about dating, aging gracefully, living your healthiest life, as well as an abundance of guides for confused young men like Ko. The obligatory joke here is that I'm surprised there can be any secrets left with so many tell-all books out there. In the past few decades, there has also been a lot of discourse over just how exactly this idea of the female body as forbidden and mysterious came to be so widespread. In the European literary tradition, books purporting to reveal the hidden secrets of the female body started cropping up in the early 13th century. 
The earliest identified work to use that title was a French translation of part of the Trotula, a manual on women's medicine compiled from three different 12th century texts and attributed to Trota, a real 12th century medical practitioner and the most famous woman among the medical professors at the University of Salerno. Professor Trota probably did write one section of the Trotula. The other two authors are unknown. Being a medieval text, there isn't one version of the Trotula. Its parts were reproduced independently or included in other compendia. Segments would be deleted or added to suit the tastes of different editors. Nor did it begin its life as a book of feminine secrets. Of its three sections, the first was Liber de Synthomatibus Mulierum, or The Book on the Conditions of Women, a largely theoretical discussion of the female reproductive system drawn mostly from Arabic translations of Greek originals. The second was De Curis Mulerium, or On Treatments for Women, a hands-on guidebook for various medical treatments, including but not limited to gynecology, and likely to have been written by, or at least based on, the writings of Trota herself. The third was De Ornatu Mulierum, or On Women's Cosmetics, which is what it sounds like. It would be later medieval authors who reconstructed the Trotula, or parts of it, as a tome of nigh mystical secrets. With this characterization, the Trotula fit neatly within the medieval genre of secret knowledge. Typically, these were tomes of philosophy, alchemy, astrology, or magic. Treating the female body as secret seems to have been an original European invention. Contemporary Arabic medical encyclopedia include those maladies and remedies unique to the female reproductive system in due course as just another part of medical practice, not something that needed to be sequestered into a specialized genre of literature. In medieval Europe, prior to the 13th century, there was a broad expectation that women's health would be managed by women. Part of what gave the Trotula so much authority as a text on women's health was the gender of its purported author, and the text itself cautions that women, out of shame, might refuse treatment from male practitioners even at the cost of their lives. The broad category of women's health was entrusted to midwives whose portfolio of responsibilities at the time was much larger than it is today. A man of the era, especially a head of household, might need to know enough about women's health care to assess the competency of a midwife before hiring her, but not anything more than that. Going back even further, during the classical period, there was a rich corpus of gynecological manuals, often written by male doctors, including famed authorities like Serranus of Ephesus and Galen of Pergamon. But these were addressed to the learned female practitioners who handled the direct care of most patients. In this early period, it seems safe to say that medical knowledge of the female body, and in particular the reproductive system, was specialized, but by no means was it secret. Then came the disasters of the 5th and 6th centuries. Invasions, near-constant civil war, and repeated waves of bubonic plague, which collectively brought about the collapse of the social structure that had sustained midwifery as an esteemed and learned profession. One author of a gynecological treatise in the 5th century bemoaned the declining literacy of midwives in his era, and by the end of the 6th century, the midwife, or obstetrix, had essentially disappeared as a class of professional medical practitioner. The role of midwife survived, of course, 
But knowledge at that point must have been passed down orally among women who were still expected to care for each other on top of all of their other duties. It is that combination of an oral knowledge tradition with the social taboos forbidding men from direct experience of women's health that created that aura of secrecy. Those women know something about the female body, and they're not telling us about it. Yet so long as women's health remained women's business, there wasn't much reason for male doctors to pursue those secrets. Why did that change? The 13th century emergence of Secrets of Women's Bodies discourse coincided with the development of the medieval predecessor to modern medicine, going back to the 10th century and the founding of medieval Europe's first medical university in Salerno. As the new cadre of professional physicians grew, medicine itself transformed. It had been a skilled craft, picked up through empirical practice and on-the-job training, supplemented by practical manuals, a field in which a healer could say, ah, I have seen this set of symptoms before, and I have used these remedies to treat them. Now, instead, it was becoming a coherent, rationalized field of knowledge based on logical and rhetorical analysis and scientific understanding of the natural world. Knowledge of how the body functioned and why was becoming a necessary prerequisite to diagnosis and cure. As this newly literate and learned medical establishment grew, the physicians flexed their new power to take over the whole field of medicine. In 1140, an aspiring healer who wanted a license to practice in Sicily would need to present himself before the royal officials for a competency examination. But a century later, the learned master physicians of Salerno themselves had taken over responsibility for determining competency. The new model physician aimed at a universal understanding of the body, derived from first principles, and they claimed a consequent universal mastery over all aspects of health, from nutrition to surgery. The first and foremost skill in acquiring this mastery was literacy. Medical texts conferred both knowledge and legitimacy. A 14th century surgeon accused of unqualified practice might defend himself by pointing directly to his library and all the good medical tomes contained therein. Laws at the time sometimes required a doctor to own the proper texts before he was allowed to set up in practice. The new literate medical establishment did not immediately displace all those other kinds of practical healers, but it created a hierarchy of practitioners, with the universal physician at the top and illiterate empirical healers including midwives, reduced to the subaltern position. Because of their much lower literacy rates at the time, women were effectively shut out of this higher sphere of medicine. That claim to universal mastery over all of the body's ailments logically meant that the physician needed to understand the specifics of the female body as well. But access to women's bodies and the knowledge about them that came with it was still restricted socially and normatively to women themselves. So, a male physician might be called upon to treat a woman, but he would then need a female assistant who would interview, examine, and actually treat the patient, all under the direction of the physician. But at that point, a person might begin to wonder why the physician is there at all, and from whence he got the knowledge necessary to direct the treatment. Well, he got it from books. And this is the point 
with the emergence of a new class of male doctors claiming authority over women's health, but with extremely limited access to women's bodies, where all of those Secrets of Women books start to appear. To make matters even more desperate, many of the physicians reading, writing, and copying those books were also priests or monks, a natural result of the church-led educational system in medieval Europe. For them, the female body would have seemed truly mysterious and alien when they read about it in books written by their mystified brethren. The Trotula combines the two genres of these secrets books, one derived from actual experience by hands-on practitioners who wrote about specific problems and specific remedies. The other, though, attempted to divine the secrets of the female body using theoretical natural philosophy, largely derived from the works of Aristotle. The most prominent example of this second group is called by various names, but principally it is the Secreta Mulierum, women's secrets. Falsely attributed to the German Dominican friar, alchemist, and polymath St. Albertus Magnus of Cologne, Secreta Mulierum survives in a large number of different manuscripts, suggesting immense popularity, despite being, let's just say, woefully inadequate as a medical, anatomical, or philosophical text, even by the standards of the time. It is also, ironically, far more verbose and detailed when it comes to the secrets of celestial bodies than female ones. Much ink is devoted to how each of the planets influences the development of a fetus. In the first month, Saturn reigns over conception because the planet is cold and dry, and those qualities are good for condensing the matter that will become the fetus. In the second month, Jupiter takes over, and being hot and humid, it fills in those places that Saturn missed. Then comes Mars to form the head and the arms. The sun shows up in month four to create the heart. Venus, in the fifth month, creates all the sexual organs and also the hands and fingers. In the sixth month, Mercury creates the voice box and the eyes. Then the moon finishes the project by adding the skin. For the final two months, Saturn and Jupiter return to, I think, balance the humors. Each individual body part is also assigned to one of the zodiac constellations. It's really quite complex. You can kind of feel the unknown medieval astrologer who wrote this grasping at straws there at the end, needing to reintroduce two planets that had already done their work just to make up the nine months of a typical pregnancy. If only they had known what we know now about Uranus and Neptune. Imagine the heights that medieval astrology could have soared to. Anyway, the origin and intended audience of Secreta Mulierum is unknown. But Helen LeMay, who produced the first modern English translation, theorized that it came from and was meant for use within all male religious communities. It comes as little surprise, then, that the text itself, and the anonymous commentaries usually included with it, treat the female body as not merely mysterious, but innately hostile. The womb is like a sewer. A menstruating woman corrupts the air and fouls the insides of men, while her hair becomes poisonous and must be covered. Women will use evil astrology to damage men's organs. And if they are old or poor, they can infect babies just by looking at them. In a weird coincidence, the LeMay translation of Secreta Mulierum, titled Women's Secrets, was published during 0083's run. But unfortunately, that was eight months after audiences first saw Coe checking out the Albion's copy of The Secret of Women's Bodies.
It seems very unlikely, then, that it was inspired by that book in particular. But perhaps someone saw one of its many successors in the world of pseudoscientific gynecology. So much for that angle. Let's now consider the Japanese name, Nyotai no Shinpi. I saved this one for last because here I think I actually have an answer. In 1967, the government of West Germany published a 77-minute-long sex education documentary film called Helga on the development of human life, which used a combination of film techniques including live action, animation, and microphotography to follow a young woman through the whole process of pregnancy and childbirth, and the development of the fetus from conception to birth. Playing in theaters to packed houses, Helga became a domestic box office smash, and was then exported and shown abroad, where it met with similar success, being seen by more than 40 million viewers around the world. In 1968, Helga received a Japanese release, under the title Nyotai no Shinpi, and it became a smash hit. It was the ninth most popular foreign film in Japan that year, with a box office of 210 million yen, and sparked a boom in sex education films that lasted for years. It remained popular enough that in 1975, the pink film publisher Nikatsu referenced it in the release of what it called a semi-documentary sequel, a follow-up going by the name Nyotai no Shinpi with content that was not really intended for educational purposes. I'm just going to assume here that this was never approved by the West German government. The popularity of the original Nyotai no Shinpi continued at least into the early 80s, because it returned to theaters for a second run in 1982. It seems probable to me that anyone making a reference to Nyotai no Shinpi in 1992, especially in a sex ed context, would have been referencing the very famous movie of the same name. In the course of my research, I also discovered that in 1992, Japan was in the midst of a major national reform of sex education policies, largely in response to the AIDS panic of the late 1980s. As a result, educators were pushing to get more information in the hands of more kids sooner. And this was also the culmination of a movement towards more expansive and progressive health education that had begun in the 1970s as a reaction against the more conservative, simplified curriculum that had dominated in the post-occupation education system of the 1950s and 60s. A young man of around Imanishi's age, who mostly grew up in the 60s and came of age before the 70s-era reforms went into effect, might very well have felt woefully ill-informed about the mysteries of women's bodies, compared to those kids these days with their modern sex education curriculum. It's an interesting point that many of them, as young men, would not have known much of anything about women's bodies or, like, you learned those things by experience. Or by going to the theater and watching a West German educational film. I can't think of a better memorial for Shima than Mayfly of Space. It offers glimpses of her past, but leaves her mysterious. Complicates her without making excuses for her. Lets her speak for herself, but never claims she's a reliable or impartial narrator. The betrayals she suffers are an explanation, 
But how many other betrayals, big and small, punctuated her life before the one-year war? By embracing an infamous reputation, she protects herself from the insults and criticisms aimed in her direction. True or false, they can be no worse than the image she has cultivated. Under a thick layer of bravado, she is haunted by her past actions, but dodges her regrets. Shima is no less stubborn than Gato in her insistence on moving forward, but she refuses to be an arrow, fired by someone else for their own purposes. And even though she seemed like a tough-as-nails survivor to me, she has the recklessness and nonchalance of someone who has decided they are living on borrowed time. That in the end, it's all just a roll of the dice. Next time on episode 8.16, No Highly Esteemed Deed is Commemorated Here, we discuss our final thoughts on Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, what we think of the OVA as a whole work, the highs and the lows of the series, our favorites, and the bits we love to hate. No points for guessing who our favorite character was. This isn't quite the end of Season 8, but we will explain that and the plan for the next few episodes next time. The danger is still present, in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The wrong Gundam opinion this week is Mayfly of Space. No, I don't think it will. There's no atmosphere for its little wings to push off of. Won't fly of space. It's pretty bad, right? It's pretty bad, yeah. say part one at the beginning of that? I don't remember. I can't remember. If we really wanted to take a dig at it, we could do uh, what is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. But that's not actually true. Maybe the SD one will be really bad and we can use it for that one. You're right, no one should esteem any of these deeds. Not a single deed. I swear I intended this to be a short piece. The problem is having passion for what you do. We used to do short ones. We used to do research pieces that were like five minutes long.
it's funnier for me to say your research on the secret of women's bodies. (laughs) (laughs) You can clarify that it's a book. This malarium. You did this to yourself. I know, I know. God, the poor boy really is getting the Ohio public school sex ed curriculum. (laughs) 